You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Thank you for gathering with us this afternoon. I got a quite a quite a task in front of me here for the next couple of minutes together. And so I'm excited that you have joined us for this gathering as we are continuing through the book of Ephesians. We started this whole series, at least I started the whole series, giving you a vision that Ephesians is, in many ways, the gospel plumbing that's underneath the house, which is the church. Ephesians, in many ways, is the root system that brings life and fruit and cultivation to all that we see above ground. Ephesians is trying to give you the underneath, the behind, what's actually going on, trying to give you an apocalypse, which is a revealing of what maybe you don't see about the church. For the past two weeks, I've been giving you a vision of to be a kingdom people and talked about the apostolic, evangelistic, prophetic, shepherding and teaching gifts and how that isn't just gifts for for the men in the congregation, but for men and women and children all to play their role in seeing the body built up and then sent out. And also try to give the picture of a temple that as we are sent out, Jesus cares just as much about the means as he does about the ends, that your life and my life should have a set-apartness to it, not uh, as a religious Pharisee that in a sense says, I'm better than the world, but set apart so that the world might see and get a glimpse of what God is like in community. And this week, the third image from Ephesians chapter 2 at the very end that we're going to flesh out is the image of family, but particularly the household. The household. Now, this is probably the most controversial passage in all of Ephesians, It could be the most controversial and dicey passage in all of the New Testament in our current cultural moment. So like I said at the beginning, I have quite my work, quite a amount of work cut out for me. Uh, There's a huge cultural gap between the first century and the 21st century. And this week, I tried to get some advice, some encouragement from one of our leaders, Sarah Hamilton, of how exactly should I go about teaching this passage what are some of you, some insights she had? And she gave me four really powerful words. You guys ready for it? Don't screw it up. That's it. That was the message. So that's going to be my attempt here for the next couple of minutes. Now, my mom's here, which is awesome. I don't know if you guys know my mom. She's sitting up here. My mom is probably, and I'm not just trying to give her embarrass her, probably the best cook I know. Like, Growing up, we would have home-cooked meals every night. I don't know if you grew up in a home like that, but I did, which is pretty amazing. But one thing she does not like to cook is meat. Meat is not one of her favorite things. It's bloody. It's, it's gross. Sometimes it looks like it might still be kind of alive, you know. Thank you. Jo- Jonathan's right here. He's with you. And uh, I remember growing up, and, and at times we would have meat cooked, and my mom was afraid that it would be still alive, you know, the dish would be served. And so it was, it was cooked very well done sometimes, right? It was a little chewy. It maybe didn't have the nuance and flavor. So I'm thinking as a kid, like, oh, steak, I don't really like steak. Like, steak's kind of gross, and I, don't really, I didn't really enjoy it. Like, and, then some, and then Keaton was, like, ordering her steak one time at a restaurant, medium rare. Like, were the blood still coming out of the meat? And I was like, and I tasted it. I was like, this is amazing. What have I been missing my whole life? I think our temptation with this passage we're about to read is to treat it very much like maybe a well-done steak. 
with no nuance and flavor. You might just say, you know what, let's just throw steak out altogether. Right, Jonathan? Don't worry. Not, we'll throw steak out altogether. It's not even worth trying or tasting. But maybe you just haven't actually been served a good steak before. Maybe you actually need a medium rare steak to get the flavor and the nuance and the texture of what it could be. And I think with this passage, because it rubs us maybe the wrong way in our cultural setting, we have a tendency to just want to throw it out. We want to create like a Thomas Jefferson Bible. He just took all the parts of the Bible he didn't like and cut them out with a pair of scissors. Uh, this passage is not, it's, it's, too, it's too uncomfortable. I don't really like what it says. So let's just cut it out. But maybe you just haven't been given a good vision of it. Maybe there's actually more for God to show you through this passage. I want to give you a little bit of a blueprint of where we're going to go. We're going to look at the relationship between wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. And even with all three of those categories, I am sure that it might bring up for you painful memories of ways maybe the passage we're about to, to read has been used as a weapon, ways that maybe you experience shame and fear, maybe ways this passage has been used to justify all kinds of things through human history that is absolutely abhorrent. So that's there. But I just want to remind us as we look at this passage, Jesus never comes with a knife to harm but he always comes with a scalpel like a physician to heal. And so even in moments of pain, if it's not actually producing healing and wholeness, it's not from Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to reimagine this passage, maybe for a fresh. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 6-9. And as I read this passage, I want you to ask the simple question, Jesus, what do you want to say to me through this word. Maybe even as I'm reading, you can follow along in your Bible in front of you, or you can just sit with open palms, a posture of receiving, even as maybe you hear words that have been maybe even used against you in some form or way. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their own husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's from Genesis 2. This is a profound mystery, but... I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. Verse 5. Slaves, 
Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Verse 9. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is God's word. Now, let's just sit in the silence for a moment. You just heard a lot of words. Let me go back to that question I asked you. Jesus, what do you want to say to me, to us, through this word? If you sense in your own heart hesitations or even feelings of, ah, I, don't, I don't want to engage with that, would you just bring that before Jesus, who comes not to harm but to heal? Jesus, would you meet with us right now? Holy Spirit, would you comfort and convict? And Father, would you come to give us a sense of your presence and warmth and your love? In Jesus' name, amen. There's a really uh, amazing story of two missionaries that were missionaries for a long time in Pap uh, Papua New Guinea. And they got, there's a story been told about it, and it's, I think, I can't remember their last names, but the guy's name was Don. And his family went to basically the bush of Papua New Guinea to a tribe that had never heard the gospel. And their goal was to translate the language and then translate the Bible into the language. And they set up their house and they go about the work of translating the language and then begin to tell the story from beginning to end, creation to restoration. They get to the, to the, the, crucif uh, they get to the, um, the, the passion scene and they're telling the story, or he's telling the story to these tribal men of Judas and how Judas betrayed Jesus with 30 pieces of silver. And all of a sudden, the men begin cheering and clapping. Yeah! He was like confused. What? They're, they're cheering and clapping for Judas who just in the story betrayed Jesus, his friend. Like there's, a, there's some kind of disconnect happening here. Maybe I translated it wrong. But the, under, the undercurrent there was that in their cultural context, deceit, uh, uh, trickery was a virtue. It wasn't seen as a, uh, as a sin. And so for them, there was this huge cultural gap between how this culture engaged with the text and what actually was meant when that text was first written in the first century and told about Jesus' crucifixion and death. There was this gap. And often we don't recognize in our own lives the gap between the first century context and our context. 2,000 years in a far different place with different customs than we have today. And there's a really good ending to that story. I won't tell you all the details of it. You can look it up, but it's a story called The Peace Child, where they tried to find a symbol in their culture that would define who Jesus was and what he was about and what he did at the cross. But they had to work through the cultural gap between Judas being a hero and not a villain. And I wonder in the same way when we come to this passage, there's so much gap between the first century and the 21st century. We have to really get into the dirt of the first century 
to understand what Paul is trying to say to this church in Ephesus as he addresses the household. That's what I want to do with us today and and unpack it for us. See, the reality is these words to you might be repugnant. They might be distasteful. But to first century ears, these words were nothing short of revolutionary. And that's what I want to unpack. But to do that, we got to begin looking at what the ancient household was all about. When you think of a household, you probably think of a first cent- or sorry, a single residence neighborhood, like many of you maybe live in, where all the houses are designed for one nuclear family, two mom and dad and 2.5 kids and a dog. That's kind of the, the picture we think of when we think of household. But that's not how households were in the first century. Households were this complex system of, yes, wives and husbands, but kids and slaves and servants and maybe relatives and cousins and grandpa and grandma, all these different people lived in one house. A household could be 40 people. That's amazing. All living, in a sense, under one roof. And all throughout the ancient world, the household was seen, especially in Rome, as the foundation of the entire state. So how the household went, how it functioned, so goes Rome. The household was, in a sense, the building block for the society. And so philosophers and religious leaders and historians did a ton of work around households, how they should work, how they should function, what kind of codes they might have between the different relationships. And so Paul, seeing that this, he also sees the household as a foundational part of the gospel being formed and birthed in a people, he also gives his own household code. And interestingly, his household code here we find is quite different and unique than the other household codes that were in his time and place. And I want to kind of unpack that for us this afternoon. See, Paul believed if the household was transformed, the entire society would be transformed. If the household was transformed, the Roman society as a whole would experience the seeds and the birth and the flourishing of the gospel in a people. So we're going to look at the three sections, wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. You're going to get talked to a lot right now. I know we do a lot of dialogue and back and forth, but I just have so much content. And this is going to be more teaching than preaching, because I think it's that important to understand this passage in light of our cultural setting. So wives and husbands. Before I jump into 522, the, the, probably the most controversial verse of the entire section. I want, and I believe this, I want you to see, blanketed in this whole section is 521, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The whole section has this mutual giving and receiving of the church. It was in contrast to the toxic patriarchy and abusive hierarchy of the ancient world, that as people mutually gave themselves to one another, and a mutual submission took place, they would be a contrast people in a culture that was so obsessed with who was on top, who had all the power. Even in Galatians 3, a passage you may be familiar with, it says, So in Christ Jesus you were all children of God through faith, for all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, Male and female, neither is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's not erasing our differences. 
But he's saying they're no longer barriers to becoming a people of mutual giving and receiving. All right, let's jump in. Wives and husbands. For each section, I want to give you a common misconception. I want to give you a cultural context, and I want to give you a gospel calling. A common misconception, some cultural context, and the gospel calling for us here. Amen. Common misconception. Ephesians 5.22, that simple phrase, wives, submit to your husbands, has been, I know this to be true, wielded as a weapon in the church. That's evil, full stop. It's been wielded to silence, to injure, to harm. And, And this is really sad. In some cases, to justify abuse or neglect. Like I said before, it's repugnant, it's disgusting. Also within this common misconception, this, 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 this uh, space I want to create, submission is used as a catch-all category in a sense that men are in charge, they make the call, they call the shots, their desires are first, everyone else comes second. Submission in this common misconception is forced, it's compulsive, it's used to suppress or oppress and it's for all women. All men are in charge of all women in this world. But here's the question. Is this what Paul intended with his words in light of first century Rome? Is that what he intended for this passage to be used and wielded? To the cultural context. The head of the household in the ancient world usually was a male. And they would oversee the entire household of those 40 people. They had an incredible amount of power and autonomy. Uh, For example, it was really improper for women to have multiple partners or to be unfaithful, yet it was really encouraged for men to actually have a myriad of partners and to sleep with whoever, whenever they wanted in the household. Slave or free, they were in charge. They called the shots. Marriage in this world and the ancient world had little to do with love, but it was about land, status, and heirs. Land, status, and heirs. And particularly, which we'll see this later when we get to the, to the conversation about children, infanticide among women, baby, baby girls, was rampant in the ancient world. See, this is the cultural dirt, the context in which Paul is writing these words. So what might that mean for us as a people, understanding maybe the common misconceptions and the cultural context? Like I said before, Paul's not unique in writing a household code. This was normal for people in his time and place, teachers, to give a vision for how the household was supposed to function. Interestingly, though, what is unique about what Paul's doing here versus other household codes is that all the marginalized parties, the people that were never mentioned in codes, Women, children, and slaves are all mentioned first. That they're mentioned first and the primacy of their mentioning is actually a sign of dignity, honor, and respect. Usually they wouldn't even be mentioned at all if only to be used by another party involved. So here right away as we see wives addressed first, children addressed first, and slaves addressed first, Paul is upending the system that was in his day. 
that all three of these parties have meaningful work and participation in the kingdom of God. Uh, In the book, Rodney Stark's book, Rise of Christianity, he says the two reasons why Christianity exploded in the Roman world, among many, was one, their care for the sick and marginalized, especially during pandemics, which is really interesting. But then two, the reason why they exploded was because women saw themselves and could participate in leading roles in the church. That in a society where women were second-class citizens at best, they were participating in all levels of church leadership. Read Paul's letters, the very end of them. Take Romans, for example. How many women are mentioned at the end of the letter as gospel partners in the work that Paul is doing? Interestingly, the word submit here, it's it's not a universal command as in all women submit to all men. It's in a particular context within a marriage. And particularly within the marriage, the word here, it's in a middle tense and it's really complicated and I won't get into all what that means. But really the the emphasis of the world or or the, the driving of the world is it's voluntary. It's a choice. To submit my life to someone else is actually something that I enter into by choice, not by force or oppression or suppression. Different from the world that Paul was living in. Interestingly, Paul challenges the men here. Uh, The context of the passage here is 40 words to the women and 115 words to the men or the husbands. In many ways, what he's doing with all three of these passages, he's confronting the malpractice of the men, the the husbands, the masters, and the parents. Interestingly, he challenges, notice in the passage there, the first couple of verses, he's challenging the men, the the husbands, to be faithful in a culture of rampant infidelity. Like I said before, where they could sleep with whoever they wanted. And to love in a culture that was simply transactional. Love your wives or love your wife as your own body. The word love in a culture where it was simply, who do I find as a partner to get me land, status, and heirs? And the vision he gives of what husbands are supposed to do is to sacrifice their lives as Christ laid down his life for the church in a culture where everyone else bended to the will and desire of the household leader, the husband. Like the, the fact that he's calling them to sacrifice and lay down their life in this cultural context is truly revolutionary because in many ways they held the highest status. And when you hold the highest status, you give no power and authority away. So I wanna wanna put this up on the screen. This is my one slide. We think about the gospel calling. When it comes to the gospel calling of wives and husbands, remember, particular context, not universal. Interestingly, Sarah and I are partnering together to lead this church. The command isn't to Sarah to submit to me as because I'm a man and she is a woman, because we're not married. We're actually partnering together in the gospel, and there should be a mutual submission as we submit to Christ to see the church move forward. But in the context of marriage, when it comes to the gospel calling of wives and husbands, it involves both voluntary submission. It's not by force or by pressure. It's a decision made to enter into this kind of relationship and radical sacrifice. One without the other is relational heresy. It's heresy in the sense of it's it's malpractice, it's wrong, and it's repugnant. Yet, both happening together is revolutionary. 
revolutionary in Paul's world and in ours. So the question you might have is, what is that supposed to look like? Okay, so in light of this vision, what are we supposed to do? What is Paul trying to tell us? And this is where the Western church, and specifically our evangelical traditions, have failed us because they give us a lot of manuals. And here's exactly what you should do in a marriage context. And sadly, I don't think we need any more manuals. Manuals are not in a context with a particular people in a particular place with particular stories and experiences in mind. It's just in this case, do this. And instead of manuals, we need models. We need a picture of what this might look like in a healthy marriage covenant. Because a manual will just try to give you A, B, C, D, and E, but it's not taking into account the actual stories and experiences of the people involved. And it's hard to even taste and touch what does this actually look like in a marriage context? What is Paul actually trying to give us a vision of until you actually see it? And so who are the, who are the people in your midst that have really beautiful, healthy marriages where you see this interplay lived out? And what might you actually glean from them? Not to say, hey, what should I do in this situation? But rather, hey, how do I model my life after these people I love and respect that are trying to live in light of the story? All right. We're going to move on to the next section. Children and fathers. Let's reread Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that may you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The first word, or one of the first words here, obey, has to be a trigger word. It has to be a word that might bring up some kind of sense and feeling from you, a resistance, maybe because of a story of abuse in your own home, maybe a story of parental malpractice where you were told to obey in great contrast with actually what the teachings and the way of Jesus looked like. Or you might have a resistance to the phrase, the commandment, honor your father and mother in a therapeutic culture that tries to trace all dysfunction and brokenness back to an unhealthy parent dynamic and relationship. So both obey and honor might feel like, ooh, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I can live into that. You might hear both of those things, especially the obey, and again, see it as a universal command to obey your parents in all circumstances, oblivious to the ways you've been wounded or could be wounded by parents. But is this what Paul intended with his words in this common misconception maybe we have in light of what he's saying about first century Rome and the context he's in? Paul addressing children by itself, if he were to write nothing else, was revolutionary. Children were not persons in the ancient world. They weren't seen as actually adding or contributing any to human society, especially baby girls. Men, okay, or boys, okay, that's great. They can help in the household and we can raise them up. But often children would just be left out. Children weren't persons. They were a nuisance at best, dispensable or disposable at worst. 
Child welfare laws didn't exist back then. I was talking to Sarah about this. This is a really recent development of how children are protected by the state. Parents in the ancient world did whatever they wanted to their children, even if it ended in really horrible circumstances. This is the cultural context in which Paul is speaking. Even the fact that children are mentioned is the most dignifying, honoring thing in a culture that didn't even see them as persons. Notice even too here that their mention means that they have a role to play in God's story that's unfolding in the household, where in the culture they're in, they were nothing but a nuisance to be overlooked. Maybe you grew up in a home where that was actually what you experienced and embodied, that you were a nuisance at best. Hence why the words obey and honor might be really hard. So what might be our calling here in this passage as the church or even as parents? The The word obey here has the assumption of being raised in the Lord. It says obey your parents as into the Lord. It's an assumption that your parents are raising you for your good, your flourishing, your growth. It's not a universal command. Paul says all over the place, obey the government. Obey the government leaders in your midst. But then he breaks actually with the government leaders when they go against the gospel story. Obey your government. But the assumption is that your government is executing justice and honoring all that are part of the society. And yet he's quick to break and dishonor the government and go against when he knows it goes against the way of Jesus. In the same way here, the assumption is that to obey your parents is to know that they actually love you and desire to raise you in the gospel. It doesn't mean a universal command to obey them in all times and all places. And there's a promise attached. It says, it will go well with you in the land. This is a, a callback to the promised land. It's a vision of Psalm 1 where we walk in the way of God and we're like a tree planted by streams of water. The weight on the passage is not on the children but on the fathers not to coerce, exasperate, or control their children, but rather in love to raise them up. The ends of any parent's dream and vision of what they want their children to be never justify the means if it's control, coercion, or by force. Now, I think there's a specific command here to us as a congregation if you've been given the blessing of raising up little ones, but also to us as a whole as we go about the work as part of one of our commitments of being a member or part of this church is to shepherd and serve our kids, to live this out. And to be honest, this this one hit me the most, I think, Because it's so easy in the chaos of raising kids to settle for control or quick solutions or relational shortcuts and not do the hard work it takes to nurture and shepherd a child, to be patient and to display the fruits of the Spirit and not exasperate your kid, not try to threaten or, hey, I'm going to take this away if you don't do this. But how do you raise them up in a way that embodies the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control? That's the vision Paul's giving to fathers and mothers. How's that going for you? When you, if you're a parent, when you think about raising your kids, is that what actually defines your parenting? 
if you're not a parent and you're part of this family and you've been called the shepherd and steward, is that how you actually see kids? Do you see them as persons? That they have a role to play in God's story, that as they honor their parents, they are participating in the grand story of God. All right, our last passage, our last section. Maybe equally as hard to wives and husbands, slaves and masters. Let's reread Ephesians chapter 6, 5 through 9. It says this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. And masters, look at this phrase, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And this is a startling phrase in a culture of hierarchy and social status that meant everything in the ancient world. And there is no favoritism with him. When you hear the word slaves here in this passage, because of our nation's history and where we've come from, the image that probably comes to mind is the transatlantic slave trade. That Africans were kidnapped from their homes, forced onto ships, which many died on the journey, and then forced to work fields, unending hours for decades. That's the history of our country, where we've come from. And the beauty is that that has been abolished and done away with. And yet still as a nation, we have more years of being under slavery in that institution than we do not. Hundreds of years of slavery have not matched now hundreds of years, hopefully soon, in the years to come of no slavery. It's a recent development. Further, this passage has been used by slave masters in history to justify the abuse and neglect of slaves. This would be a common passage that would be read in a slave Bible in, in uh, the colonial America and in, in, in slavery uh, from house to house. Slaves, obey your masters. I love they probably left out the last three or four verses on, on this passage here. But no, slaves, obey your masters. They would drill that and just use the Bible as a weapon to harm and to injure those who were under them. Again, it'd be easy just to throw this passage out. Like, what, we, what is Paul even doing talking about slaves and masters? And why doesn't Paul seek to abolish the system altogether? Like, why isn't he more clear? In many ways, maybe you can make the extension, Paul, and then as an extension, Jesus must be pro-slavery in light of these verses here in Ephesians. But is this what Paul intended with these words in light of his context in the first century? Now, slavery in the ancient world had some similarities, but quite a lot of differences to the transatlantic slave trade. First of all, slavery in the ancient world wasn't solely based on ethnicity as it was during the transatlantic slave trade. Second, slavery in the ancient world was, in some ways, some were prisoners of war that would be slaves for a really long time. 
But in many ways, you would enter into what the phrase that Paul used all, all over the place, bond servants, where somebody who went bankrupt economically would sell themselves into slavery to another, them and their whole family. And they would work for a certain amount of years to pay off their debt. And then eventually they'd be free. They'd be given freedom from the person who enslaved them. It wasn't permanent like much of the slave trade and slave practice in our country was. Now, there was similarities. Slavery in the ancient world, once you became a slave, you were at the mercy of your master. They could abuse, neglect, and even take your own life without any, uh, any consequence from the justice system. Interestingly, in the ancient world, some people, some scholars estimate, estimate 30 to 50% of the entire Roman population were slaves. Almost half. Slavery in the ancient world was like electricity. Literally, the empire ran on it. This is the context in which Paul is speaking. These are the stories that he has in mind as he's thinking about this institution that exists within Rome. And again, the question is, why doesn't Paul say clearly here that slavery is evil and should be abolished? Let me try to give an answer to that. Try to get in Paul's mind for a second in light of the story. Slavery was baked into the system, the Roman Empire. It was so central to how the system operated, and it was a tyrannical system. There wasn't a democracy that happened in the ancient world. Caesar was Lord, and he decided what was right and what was wrong. That was it. You didn't have any way to go about a judicial system or political process to see things changed. It is what it is. It will not change. Paul couldn't rally up enough uh, signatures on a ballot to get a proposition up there, like we have all these props that are coming, to abolish slavery in the ancient world. There was, no, there was no way to get to Caesar. It wasn't a democracy. It was tyranny. Because he had no access to seek its abolishment, that wasn't his target, at least from the outside looking in. But notice what he does here, which maybe actually is far more subversive in his cultural context. He desired, I think, to see slavery abolished from the inside out because he had no means of political process or ways to see the tyranny of the Roman Empire overthrown. He said, hey, actually, if slaves and masters were to behave in this way and relate to one another in this way, it would undo the system from the inside. It would literally rot the institution of how slaves and masters treated one another. So that when you go over later in the New Testament to the story of Philemon, you have a story of a slave that has run away. And Paul is inviting the slave and calling the slave Onesimus to go back to Philemon, his master. But he tells Philemon, do not welcome him back as a slave, but as a brother. Paul, I think, believed the system was abhorrent. It was a disgusting institution that was anti the gospel. And yet what he's trying to do is to see it undone from the inside out. So that if households were to live in this way, if slave and masters were to relate in this way, that there was no favoritism, that there was dignity and respect given, it would undo the system from the inside. And then it would spill over into the society as a whole. And slavery would be undone.
Paul's hope that was, what the hope was that there'd be these reciprocal relationships happening of people of different status. Bonhoeffer says this, which I think is so interesting even here as we think about people that different statuses and how it looks like in the context of a church or a household. He says, the exclusion of the weak and the insignificant, the seemingly useless people from a Christian community may actually mean the exclusion of Christ. In the poor brother, Christ is knocking at the door. We must therefore be very careful at this point. Paul's vision is that in the church, regardless of what status you held, what power you had at your disposal, it was always to be given on behalf of another. There'd be this mutual giving and receiving, even of slaves and masters, of wives and husbands, in a culture where the hierarchy was so clear and fundamental that those at the top held and hoarded their power at the expense of all else. But this was a different kind of community, a different kind of household, where the people that held power and status gave it away to serve those who did not. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. Paul's vision of the gospel is it wasn't just this ethereal, hypothetical thing that was good for certain portions or parts of your life, but it was supposed to permeate and be part of every single one of your relationships. And this gospel ethic of mutual giving and receiving would undo even an institution like slavery if it was practiced in the communities and the households. That's the vision he's giving us here in this passage. We've covered a lot of ground. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. I just want to invite us into a moment of silence, a space of silence. You've heard a lot of content. You've heard a lot of dynamics at play. You might have unanswered questions. I've tried my best to try to situate us into the context of the passage and then bring out some implications. But we have a lot of work to do. We were having a conversation this morning uh, in our Bonhoeffer cohort that you and I are improvisers in the story of God, that he gives us the script. We know how the story ends, but in the in-between time, between now and Jesus returns, we have to improvise. But improvising knowing where the story has gone so far. But God doesn't give us always a manual of how to go about all the different relationships and questions we might have. He's not going to answer every single one of them in particular situations. But he's given us a story. He's given us a vision here of what it might look like to relate to one another across social status. And he's called us as the church in our time and place to live into that reality. To have a community where there is really mutual giving and receiving. They're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ because Christ is the head of the church and we all bow our knee to him. So would you just sit in silence for a moment and just see what the Lord might want to bring up? What is it maybe a question you have or a thing you want to explore, or a way you need to forgive someone, or a thing you need to find healing from. Would you just let that let your heart settle and see what comes? I'd encourage you, whatever is settling in your own heart, is there an avenue this week to have a conversation with somebody about it? Somebody that you trust that can listen? in dialogue with you of what it might look like to try to see this passage lived out in beautiful and flourishing ways for all.
because Jesus came not to harm, but to heal. And what was missing in this whole message and teaching this afternoon was maybe the most important part at the very beginning. Paul says this was a great mystery. He says this is a great mystery. And he says the mystery is referring to Christ and the church. Now you can unpack that in a million different ways, but the mystery is this. Christ, the one who held all power, authority, who sat at the top of the social status, who was the supreme over all things. The mystery is Christ chose to submit his life, to sacrifice his life on behalf of the church, to lay down his life. The one who had it all and all status actually gave his life for the sake of you and me. And to take it even further back, this is the very nature of God and his character. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all together are submitting to one another. The Father sends the Son and gives him his power and authority, lets him be the hero of the story. The Son ascends to the Father and then sends the Spirit and lets him be the comforter and convictor. They're constantly trying to outdo one another, Father, Son, and Spirit, and honor and respect and glory and praise. God exists in this kind of community of submitting to himself, and he's invited you and me into that kind of relationship with God that we get to join in on the dance. That every week we come to this table as a small act of bowing our knee, of giving our status and privilege and laying it down so that we might receive from the King. That this is a picture that's supposed to form us in the pattern of Jesus who sacrificed his life for you and me, so therefore we can sacrifice our lives for others. So that's the invitation. As the kids are walking in, they get to join us because they are persons in the story. They are persons in the story. And we get to join in together and welcome and feast with Jesus. Would you stand with me? Let me read from the passage in 1 Corinthians and then I'm going to invite us to the table. For I received from the Lord, which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's recite our mystery of faith and then come and receive from the King. Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and receive.